Jesus, Class 7, Good Friday. Good Friday begins at midnight and runs like a train until just before sundown. It is like a driverless train. It just keeps running, crashes, and slowly rolls over to a grinding stop. Fourteen, fifty-three through 65 Jesus on Trial They marched Jesus down the hill and off to the high priest's house, where he had called an assembly of the elders and scribes. I followed them at a distance. I was determined not to run away like the others. I had promised Jesus I would not desert him. As the crowd moved into the courtyard of the high priest, I followed along with them. The guards had a small fire going where we all stood around warming ourselves. We could hear the discussion going on in the other room. They were trying to get someone to testify against Jesus so they could justify a sentence of death, but no one wanted to say anything. When they finally coaxed some to say things they had heard about, they could not get any two to agree. Someone said, We heard him say, This temple made with human hands will be destroyed, and I will raise a new temple in just three days. A temple that is not made with hands. But then someone else refuted that, and they could not agree. Then the chief priest stood up and yelled at Jesus, What do you have to say about this? But Jesus said nothing to him. Now the high priest was really getting upset, and he said to Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Most High? Jesus looked at him and spoke very deliberately, I am, and you will live to see the Son of Man coming like thunderclouds from heaven, and seated at the right hand of God. This caught the old priest off guard for just a moment. Then he tore his clothes and turned on the crowd, yelling, We don't need any witnesses! This man condemns himself with his blasphemy. What do you say now? And they all started shouting and condemning him, saying he deserved to die. Some even began to abuse him. They spit on him, and when the guards blindfolded him, they struck him, taunting him like children. Hey, prophet! Prophesy now, who hit you? They might have stoned him right there, but the guards took him out and beat him even more. Mark 14, 66-72, Fear and Failure Then it happened. I watched the guards take him away, beating him and taunting him as they went. I was frozen in fear when one of the servants of the high priest, a young girl, came up to me staring at me as she came. She said, you were with this man, Jesus, the Nazarene? The others looked at me when she spoke, and I said, What are you talking about? What man? I left the fire and walked out by the gate, and I heard the cock crow. But that stupid girl wouldn't let it go. She went over to a group of men and announced to them, That man over there is one of his followers. I turned to them, and I told them she was mistaken. Well, she's just a girl, I said. What can she know? And I moved outside the gate. Moments later, the men followed after me, and one of them said, Hey, you! You are one of those Galileans who were with this Jesus. I was so afraid for my life at that moment, I swore at him, Damn it, man! Leave me alone! I swear to you, I don't know what you are talking about. Just as those words left my mouth, I heard the cock crow a second time, and I remembered what Jesus had said to me. You will do more than desert me. 
You will deny me three times before the cock crows twice. And I broke down and wept like a baby. Mark 15, 1 through 15. Pilate, the pawn. When morning came, the chief priests assembled the council to make sure that they still voted the way they had the night before. Then they bound Jesus again and led him away to Pilate. Pilate was amused by the council's decision, and he asked Jesus, So, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus caught his inflection and answered in kind, Well, if you say so. The priests, however, were not amused. They set upon Pilate with all their venom and accused Jesus of every offense they could. Pilate listened for a while, and then he silenced them. He turned to Jesus and asked him, This is quite a list of charges for a king to be accused of. Don't you have anything to say in your defense? But Jesus made no reply. He just smiled at it all. This amazed and amused Pilate. So Pilate tried to make a comparison between the helpful offenses of Jesus and the violent offenses of real criminals. It was his custom every year to release one prisoner during the Passover festival. He would always let the crowds pick the prisoner to be released. When the crowds came to Pilate to ask for a prisoner to be released, he snatched upon a plan. He could release Jesus, or he could release Barabbas, a notorious murderer and rebel. So Pilate queried the crowd, Would you like me to release your king of the Jews, Jesus? But the priests and the scribes whipped up the crowds to release Barabbas instead. Again, Pilate sought to play down Jesus' offenses, and because he had heard that Jesus was popular when he was teaching in the temple, he asked them, Then what shall I do with your king, this Jesus, the king of the Jews? They shouted back, Crucify him! Now Pilate was really confused by this, and he asked them, Why do you want him crucified? What harm has he done? But they shouted even louder, drowning out his voice, Crucify him! Crucify him! So Pilate gave in. Being unwilling to anger the mob, he released Barabbas to the crowd and sent Jesus to be flogged and crucified. Mark 15, 16-24, The Cruel Journey The soldiers led Jesus into the inner courtyard of the governor's palace, and just for sport, they assembled the whole cohort of Pilate's guard. They put a purple cloth around him, and they twisted some thorny branches into a crown and stuck it on his head until the thorns dug into his flesh. Then they shouted and saluted him, Hail, King of the Jews! They hit him on the head with a reed pole. They spit on him. Some even knelt down and paid homage to him. Then they stripped him naked for his flogging. When Jesus did not oppose this humiliation, they grew tired of it and gave him back his clothes. It was mid-morning when they led him out to be crucified. Jesus was so weak the soldiers forced another man from outside the city to carry his cross. This man was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. This man carried the cross all the way to Golgotha, the place of the skull. When they arrived, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but Jesus would not drink the wine. I remembered then how he had said he would not drink wine again until after the Passover. The soldiers stripped him again and divided his clothes among them, 
casting lots to see who would take what. Mark 15, 25 through 41, the crucifixion. About nine in the morning they crucified him, placing a sign over his head which read, The King of the Jews. On his left and on his right they crucified two thieves. People who were walking by the crosses would spit on him. Some of them yelled at him, Hey, smart guy, you are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it. What are you going to rebuild now? You can't even come down from the cross and save yourself. Even the chief priests came to scorn him and the scribes to mock him. Isn't this the guy who was healing everybody's wounds and saving them from death? He can't even heal his own wounds. He can't even save himself. Tell you what, Jesus, if you can come down off that cross right now, we will fall at your feet and worship you. Even the thieves on his sides taunted him. When the sun was overhead, about noon, the sky darkened and the sun could not be seen. About three in the afternoon, Jesus broke the silence with a scream. Oh, Lord, my God, why have you abandoned me? People who were there thought that he was calling on Elijah. Someone thought he needed a drink, and they ran to fill a sponge with sour wine. This they put on a stick and held it near his mouth. But another pulled it away, saying, No, no! Let us see if Elijah does come to offer him a drink and take him down. Then Jesus gave a loud cry and collapsed, and he breathed no more. They say that the temple curtain was split in half, torn from top to bottom at that very moment. The centurion, whose servant had been healed, was standing nearby facing Jesus, and when he saw Jesus stop breathing, he said, I think he really was the Son of God. I was not at the cross. All I know about it I learned from others who were there. Several women watched from a distance, Mary the Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and Joseph, and also Salome. These women traveled with us often and were with Jesus often when he taught in Galilee. There were also other women who had joined us as we traveled to Jerusalem. Mark 15, 42 through 47, the burial. Since it was the day before the Sabbath, they had to move quickly as they would not be able to move the body after sundown. As evening was approaching, Joseph of Arimathea, himself a member of the high priest council, but who had often listened to Jesus and believed in the life after death, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate, surprised that he was already dead because it could take days for a crucified man to die, asked the centurion if he was dead. When he heard from the centurion that Jesus was in fact dead for some time, he told Joseph he could have the body. Joseph had a tomb hewn out of rock in the garden. He bought a fine linen cloth and had Jesus wrapped in the cloth and laid him in the tomb. He had the tomb sealed with a large round stone. Mary the Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph saw where the body was laid inside the tomb. in the other Gospels. Matthew, 
is similar to Mark, from arrest to trial before the Sanhedrin to death and burial. But early on, he includes the suicide of Judas. Also, Matthew has Pilate wash his hands. Luke is similar as well. He omits the death of Judas. Luke alone includes Jesus being queried by Herod. When Jesus is walking to the cross, he stops to chide the women, weeping, warning them of the hard times to come. Jesus forgives those who had crucified him, and he offers paradise to one of the robbers being crucified with him. Luke omits Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? John's version of Friday follows the same outline, but with many differences. Judas does not kiss Jesus. Peter is named as the person who cuts the ear off the high priest's slave, Malchus. John places the disciple Jesus loved, supposing it was John in significant places. While Peter stays outside the courtyard at the trial, John goes in to be closer and then brings Peter in. Pilate's conversation with Jesus is different. Pilate hands Jesus back to the Jews for crucifixion. Jesus carries the cross himself without any help. And Jesus tells Mary that John is now her son and tells John that Mary is now his mother. The Passion Play The word passion instance means exactly the opposite of what most people would think. We think passionate means filled with emotional fervor, that passion drives people with intensity, love, and some level of carnality. But this word actually comes from the Greek and extends from the Greek root, which means passive. Jesus goes to his death passively, resignedly, without complaint, without emotion at all. Yet this, like the picture of the Last Supper, is not supported by Scripture. It is the product of early church doctrine about the nature and person of Jesus, that perhaps Jesus was not really totally human, that his spiritual self transcended any earthly pain he might have felt, so he was able to go to the cross passively. It also contains the understanding that Jesus was being victimized by the temple priests, by Rome, by Herod, because he was a threat to their power. Years ago, I'd accepted this line of thinking and even preached it on Good Fridays, but the more I wrestle with it and read it, the less I buy it. Again, reading scripture, it seems the opposite is true. Herod had no love for the priests or Rome and probably found the whole thing tedious at best. Jesus was not a threat to Herod, so he has no reason to put Jesus to death. Pilate, I think, may have actually liked Jesus. His encounter finds Jesus a smart, witty, and even funny person. I think they exchanged appreciative glances. In another setting, two very intelligent men could have had a wonderful conversation about the religious political dilemma that now confronted them. But Jerusalem at Passover is a powder keg waiting for a match. So to keep some peace at Passover and appease the priests, regrettably and with some sadness, he sends Jesus to the cross which leaves the priests. They had largely defeated Jesus at this point. In the first years, Jesus drew thousands of people, just like John the Baptist. But 
John is now dead. The verbal snipers who had assailed Jesus have taken their toll. The local priests have closed their door to the traveling rabbi from Galilee. He is just a minor irritant staying mostly in the outer parts of the region. They probably felt they could just ignore him and he would go away. There really was no reason to upset his few followers or bother asking the help of Rome, which they were loath to do. So it is not the powers that hold authority that drive the events of this week. It is Jesus. After the transfiguration, Jesus announced he was going to Jerusalem for Passover. He explains to his disciples several times that in Jerusalem he will be crucified and he will rise on the third day. But this is so unthinkable and preposterous that the disciples give it little regard. Now, as Passover approaches, the small traveling band of followers is suddenly discovered at Bethany. Jesus has come to Jerusalem. The priests have to be furious. They thought they had swept him aside, and now he is at their front door, surrounded by supportive crowds. They must have a response, but they are just not prepared. So, when they finally find Jesus actually approaching the gates of the temple, they close the gates. When he comes back on Monday and throws a huge tantrum, they take a pass. Realizing he is not going away, they finally come at him on Tuesday, with the same plan that worked in the small villages and townships. But now, he publicly embarrasses them, and the crowds are totally swept up in the conflict, siding heavily with Jesus. Now, the conflict is joined. Jesus has mounted a frontal assault. But this is not George Patton assaulting Casablanca. No, this is Pickett's charge, marching across the valley at Gettysburg. He has no chance. Jesus intended to get the attention of the priests, and he intended to die. He has been saying this for weeks, so we know this is his plan. But he also learns that his frontline soldiers, his closest friends, the disciples were having trouble accepting this plan. Peter has confronted him directly and been rudely put in his place by Jesus. Get thee behind me, Satan. So Jesus has to accept that when the going gets the hardest, they will have difficulty following him. Now, having marched on the temple, assaulted the temple merchants, argued with all the various temple factions, and gained the full support of the crowds, the Jewish leaders of that time had little choice but to have him put to death. If he hangs around much longer, the crowds will not honor the authority of the temple or its leadership. So he has forced their hand. The person who is driving this train is Jesus, and he intends to drive it right off the tracks. When the Sanhedrin is assembled to try the arrested criminal, they fail to agree on the charges. Peter mentions this with some surprise, I think, the arguing going on among the elders, with one making accusations and another refuting them. After hours of this wrangling, the high priest turns on Jesus and queries him directly, What do you have to say about this? Jesus does not answer. If Jesus was looking to get out of there alive, this was his chance. Say nothing, being passive, could get him off as no charges had been made that would stick. But Jesus senses that his whole plan is about to go awry. These silly priests can't agree on anything. So when the second question comes at a higher volume, Jesus rises to the bait with every intention of making sure he is convicted. The high priest asks, 
Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Most High? And Jesus looked at him and spoke very deliberately. I am. And you will live to see the Son of Man coming like thunderclouds from heaven and seated at the right hand of God. This caught the old priest off guard for just a moment, and then he tore his clothes and turned on the crowd yelling, We don't need any witnesses. This man condemns himself with his blasphemy. What do you have to say now? And they all started shouting and condemning him, saying he deserved to die. So, Jesus is not passive. He is not passionate. He is deliberate, and he is planning to die. What he doesn't quite know is how they will get him to the cross, but he knows it will end at the cross. The play now shifts scenes as we begin the encounter with Pilate. This is painted by history as a dark moment, and it will get dark. But it begins with a sense of humor, even delight, as Pilate takes in this addition to his morning agenda. Pilate must have thought this would be a crazy week anyway. It was Passover. The city is filled with pilgrims from all over the region. There is always too much revelry, too much drinking, and too many country folk encounters with city folk. But he was prepared. His troops were dispatched, extra men in the streets at night and patrolling the markets by day. So when he hears the high priest has a special request of him, and the whole Sanhedrin is assembled on his front door with a rapidly growing crowd of onlookers, he puts down his Jerusalem Times, grabs his morning coffee, puts on a clean outfit that befits his authority, and makes his way to the balcony to address the assembled dignitaries. They have brought him a man who has claimed to be the king of the Jews. Note here that this is not a charge brought against Jesus by the Sanhedrin. They claim he has blasphemed by taking on the mantle of the Messiah. But they know that is not an offense to Rome. So they mix their meaning and claim that his crime is against Rome. He claims to be a king, an affront to Caesar. Imagine Pilate's surprise when they produce the man. He looks anything but regal, his clothes torn, covered in spit, a bit disheveled, bound at the wrists. He looks like a vagrant pulled off the street for sport. I imagine Pilate's first thought is, this must be a game. I am being played with here. So he turns to Jesus and asks him directly, and a bit sarcastically, So, are you the king of the Jews? Somewhere in his mind, he has to be thinking, this is the kind of king they deserve. Jesus completely understands how ridiculous this must look, so he deftly volleys the question back across the net. Well, if you say so. Jesus is adding absurdity to absurdity. Knowing Pilate is just a regional governor, he cannot name a king. If he did, then he would be put on trial. This had to amuse Pilate, who would have expected a condemned man to vehemently protest his innocence. But now he is thinking this is more fun than the morning crossword puzzle he left on the table. This is interrupted by the angry priests who continue to drive the accusations. Pilate throws it back in their hands. Look, if you want this so much, you do it. But they don't want to do it. The crowds who follow Jesus might turn on them. They want Rome to act so they can shirk the blame. So they pile on a list of offenses on Jesus, which Pilate must have listened to with the distracted ambivalence and amusement of someone watching popcorn being shot out of a cannon. 
a whole lot of noise without much impact. Finally, having heard enough, he silences them with a stern look and a wave of the hand. This is quite a list of charges for a king to be accused of. Don't you have anything to say in your defense? But Jesus made no reply. Perhaps he shrugged a bit. Pilate realizes this is a sham event, so he tries to call their bluff by dropping his own bomb on them. He will let them choose the pardon of the Passover, Barabbas, a man who kills people, or Jesus, the man who raises people from the dead. If it was Tuesday in the temple, Jesus would walk out a free man. The crowds were with him. But it is Friday, before Pilate, and this crowd is firmly in control of the Jewish leaders. They shout, give us Barabbas. And what of this Jesus? Crucify him. So Pilate gets played, and he sends Jesus to the cross. Then, as if in defiance of the crowd's choice, Pilate releases Barabbas straight into their midst, a murderer freed into a frenzied crowd. Be careful what you ask for. It is still morning, and the heat of the day is already upon us. But Jesus is now on his way to the cross. Jesus knows it will not be easy, and it will be painful. He even had moments where he questioned the whole plan. Remember, as he prays on the Mount of Olives, Dearest Father, you can do anything you wish. Please take this cup from my lips, please. Then with a sense of resignation, he gives himself to it again. But then it is not about what I want. It's about what you want. Bend me to your will, Lord. But facing the torture and torment of the crucifixion, the pain in his mortal body screams out, O oh Lord, my God, why have you abandoned me? There is nothing passive in that scream. He has suffered. He hasn't slept in two days. He has probably lost a lot of blood to the whipping, the crown of thorns, and the nails in his hands and feet. Finally, unable to raise his body to expand his lungs with air, his lungs filled with fluids from being hung on the cross, his breathing slows. His heart is being compressed. His head drops and he dies. It is finished. As a pastor, it has been my role and my privilege to be present as people have passed. I have counseled families, loved ones, friends, parents of infants and children, teenagers on up to seniors of a century, and I know these things about death. Death is the ultimate equalizer. Whatever benefits your life has given you, they are irrelevant when death comes. All people, all colors, all races, all ages, all religions, all social and economic classes, everyone will die. Everyone will face death differently, which is irrelevant, really. How you have spent the previous millions of minutes are more important than how you spend the last one. The memorial liturgy is spot on. Let us go forth to live as people who are prepared to die. It is much better to come to terms with your ultimate demise early and live fully 
than to live in the fear of death and miss out on living. One thing I was surprised to discover is that there is a sense of presence in death, if you are aware enough to embrace it. Whenever I pray with a family, just after the passing of a loved one, I pray with the clear understanding that the spirit of that person is alive and with us still, palpably present in the space we are in at that moment. That presence lingers for an unspecified time, depending on the people present and their awareness of it. Then, just as a friend might say goodbye, withdraw a step, turn and walk away on a foggy beach, the presence departs that space. This is especially true when death has hovered for some time and is expected. I cannot say if it is true when death is sudden and unexpected. I have no experience of that yet. But I expect that it is. But people may not be aware enough in that moment to embrace it. It is my belief that we are infinite beings hosted by finite vessels who do not fully understand that the finite is temporary and the infinite is ultimately the most important. The vessel that carries us through life is vastly important to be sure we cannot fully embrace life without it. But if we spend too much time on its comfort and pleasure, we may forget to spend time exercising our infinite senses, which offer us so much more pure joy in life. We seek happiness by feeding the wrong part of our being. My personal mantra is, the essence of life is spirit. Jesus knew these things perfectly well. He understood death. Living in a small village where animals were food products, where 35 was old age, where diseases we find irritating today were terminal, he would have seen many deaths. Jesus also knew that the infinite is more powerful than the finite. And he was able to raise at least three people from the dead. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, and the dead boy in the procession. So Jesus knew that death was not final. It was not as powerful as life. In the face of all this talk of death, remember that when Jesus was asked why he had come, his answer was profound. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Death is the thief that comes to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus offers us life and is teaching us how to live it abundantly. Even in his dying, he is teaching us how to live. He goes to death like a man with a purpose, not eagerly, but purposefully, knowing that life is more powerful. When I was active in pastoral ministry, I made sure that Good Friday was a special event in the life of the church. In many years, when I was part of a ministerial group that included Roman Catholics, I would take part in the afternoon procession called the Stations of the Cross. In Pasadena, the ministerial association would hold a three-hour service on Good Friday afternoon from noon to three, the hours Jesus was alive on the cross. But always, on the evening of Good Friday, I would hold a worship in the church, reading the seven last words of Jesus on the cross, often with additional readings or musical anthems, or a requiem by a major composer. 
to augment the worship experience, I often wrote additional works to bring the fuller emotional impact of Good Friday home. In 2009, the version of Golgotha was a series of seven poems, Voices of the Participants at the Cross, the Soldiers, the Crowd, Mary, Jesus. We had a small group, a reader's theater style setting, and they presented these pieces to the congregation after the reading of one of the last words. Here are the last two poems of those seven poems. The last two things Jesus says on the cross are, it is finished, and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Both poems are from the perspective of Jesus, and the voice is Jesus. The sixth poem, finished. He could barely breathe. He felt weak and nauseous. He knew he had lost too much blood, sweated too much under the cross. His head was feverish. His eyes were heavy and hazy. The taste on his tongue was his own blood and sweat. Then his eyes cleared, and he saw them all. He saw them as they are, filled with fear and weakness. He wept for them. He knew them as promise. He saw them all living promise, imprisoned in fear. He saw Peter cowering. He saw John comforting. He saw Mary weeping, arms folded like she held a child. Then he dotted off again until he felt the lance cut his side. He watched the blood and water gush forth out of his own lungs. He knew death when he saw it. He felt the darkness enshroud him. He took one more breath to speak. It is finished. The seventh poem, The Father's Hands. There was a fluttering sound. It stopped and then continued louder. He opened his eyes and could see only wings, a thousand white wings beating around him. He was in some winged, whirling wind, flying upward. He was aware that he was moving, moving slowly away from the darkness. He was aware that he was weightless, pure spirit. He could not see his body at all. All he could see were the wings flying upward. He was aware of the brightness. He tried to draw his hands to his eyes, but the feathers brushed against his face, and he could see nothing but white wings. Their whiteness was blinding, the wings flying upward. He was aware that the pain was no more. He could not remember it. It simply was no more. He closed his eyes, if eyes they were, and let the beating sound of the wings fill him the sound like a heartbeat of the wings flying upward. He began to feel weight again and warmth. Then the wind breath filled him again warmly. He did not want to open his eyes now. He only thought of smiling and resting in the soft, warm feathers.